It was oppressively hot, even though nearing midnight, as we walked into the central square at Marrakesh in Morocco. The place was alive with people, and little stalls selling handmade goods. This was the cool time of the day, in a city where temperatures regularly reached 120 degrees Fahrenheit. We wound our way through henna artists, palm readers, dancers, tea stalls, and crude tables spread with various delicacies, sampling a few on the way. John and I were headed toward the famous Souk of Marrakesh, a labyrinth of shops reached through narrow old stone streets and covered with canopies for shade during the day. We were looking for the shop of a Christian leather worker. We found him, and after the warm hugs and introductions were completed, we sat down for some tea and fellowship. The shop was tiny, maybe ten feet by fifteen feet at best. It was filled with various leather goods for sale. A circular stair went up to a room above the store. This was where the young man lived as well as worked. It was stifling even at midnight. I purchased some beautiful leather Bible covers from the man, and he shared his life with me. It was a hard life for a Christian. He was open about his faith, which meant that many Moroccans wouldn't buy anything in his store, even though the workmanship was exquisite. But he would not let that hinder his witness for Christ. He pointed to a large picture behind him. Each shop owner was expected to display a picture of King Muhammad VI in an ornate frame in order to show his patriotism. But he did not display a picture of King Muhammad VI behind his workbench. He displayed a picture of Jesus in a simple wooden frame. And he said, with an infectious laugh, Jesus is my king. Imagine your life set in a picture frame. Would the frame be a frame of this earth, or a frame of heaven? Would it be a frame of now, or a frame of eternity? Would you frame your choices and your loyalty by allegiance to the kings of this world, or the king of heaven? Which king do you serve? The true servant lives for the pleasure of the king. But which king? King Artaxerxes appointed Nehemiah as governor of the land for twelve years. While Nehemiah did his political job well, we see in Nehemiah 5 that he had a higher loyalty. Nehemiah served at the pleasure of a higher king than King Artaxerxes. And my friends, so do we. The king framed on the walls of our shops should be Jesus. Not any president, not any political party, not any flag or country on this earth. We frame our lives by eternity's values, just like Nehemiah. I want you to see two principles of servanthood in these verses. Notice, first of all, in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, that the true servant gives up his rights. The true servant gives up his rights. 
Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of King Artaxerxes, for twelve years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors, who were before me, laid burdens on the people, and took from them bread and wine, besides forty shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so, because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Nehemiah had powerful rights as a governor of a Persian province, but he willingly gave up the rights of his position. Nehemiah refers to the former governors and how they used their positions for personal gain in verse 15. He's not talking about the first two governors named Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel, who are both mentioned in the book of Ezra. However, we know from archaeological evidence that there were three other governors between Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. These intervening governors abused the people through taxation. The Persian governors not only collected taxes for Persia, but also for their own treasuries. Apparently, the going rate at that time was about 40 shekels a day, plus bread and wine. Then, on top of the governor's personal tax, the lesser government officials would extort money from the people while collecting the taxes for the governor. Corruption was rampant as government officials lined their own pockets at the expense of the poor people. The people got nailed three times, by the Persian government, by the governor, and by the tax collectors. The Persians had two major forms of currency. There was the shekel, which was a silver coin weighing about two-tenths of an ounce, and there was the derrick, which was a gold coin and weighed about three-tenths of an ounce. The coins were 98% pure silver and gold, and each coin bore the image of the king, kneeling with a bow in his left hand and a spear in his right hand, or else the king shooting an arrow. A sheep cost three shekels, and ten quarts of wine cost one shekel. Historians estimate that Persian kings collected about 20 million derricks of gold and 14,560 shekels of silver every year. In addition, they could collect a certain percentage of the grain, wine, and other produce from the people. Very, very little of this vast wealth was ever returned to the province, so the local governors also levied taxes to support their own treasuries. It was the custom to melt down the gold and silver and pour it into jars, which were then broken and the bullion stored in vaults. Alexander the Great found about 270 tons of silver piled up in heaps just in one city of Susa alone when he invaded the Persian Empire years later. Studies have demonstrated that this taxation process concentrated the wealth of the empire in the hands of royalty or a few wealthy businessmen who could take advantage of the system. 
Over the years, this taxation system slowly drained money from the middle class. This, in turn, produced 50% inflation rates across the empire. The cash-starved people would borrow money to pay taxes. The going rate for such loans in the Persian Empire at this time was 40% per year. The taxation system siphoned money from the middle class and gave it to the wealthy class. Taxation was merely a system which redistributed the money into the hands of those who had control of the government. Now, I'm sure that I speak for most of you when I say that I have little fondness for increased taxation. Who does? As someone has said, a dime is a dollar after taxes. Taxation is a means of redistributing money by law and usually ends up benefiting the rich and powerful, no matter how altruistically it is presented. The popular maxim is true. No nation ever taxed itself into prosperity. I would rather have lower taxes and fewer government benefits because that is one way to limit the concentration of power in the hands of a few, and it gives local people the resources to deal with local problems where they can do the most good for the people. Nehemiah chose not to tax the people to support himself. The taxes for the Persian government had to be collected, but he did not collect taxes to support his governorship. When it says that he chose not to eat the governor's food allowance, he is talking about taxing the people to support himself. So Nehemiah did not use his position for his own personal benefit. He gave up the rights of his position. So he sets a good example of political leadership. We see in these verses the rights of his position versus the devotion to his mission. Nehemiah did not collect taxes for his own government officials or for himself because, because of the fear of God in verse 15. The fear of God. That was his reason. It was not because he was motiva motivated by compassion for the poor, although that may have played a part in his decision. He was motivated ultimately by the fear of God. He knew what God had said about his personal responsibilities to use our resources to serve his kingdom, God's kingdom. This devotion to his mission was what motivated Nehemiah. He wasn't in this position to serve himself or even his people. He was in this position to serve his God. He did it because of the fear of God. God had called him to carry out a mission. He was to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah was determined to fulfill his mission before God because he knew that God would hold him accountable if he failed. And because of his devotion to his mission, he himself worked on the wall. And he made his government officials work on the wall as well. They did not acquire land or live off their positions or their power. They worked side by side with the people to accomplish the mission God had sent them to complete. My friends, 
Revival begins when Christians give up their own rights to devote themselves to God's mission on earth. The mission is more important than our rights, always. Too many Christians are fixated on protecting their rights today. The mission gets lost in the battle over our social and political rights. We want to protect the church, but we are losing sight of the mission of the church. Our mission is to reach people with the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, not politics or money or power or position. The gospel is the central focus of our mission. We must keep the main thing the main thing and not get sidetracked by peripheral matters or concerns. God has given each of us different resources, talents, abilities, and gifts, but he tells each of us to use those resources for his mission. The mission is more important than our rights. That is why Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Self-denial means giving up our rights to achieve the mission, the completion of the mission of Jesus Christ. As long as we view our rights as more important than our mission, there will never be revival in the church or in our country. Revival begins when we subordinate our rights to his mission. The first principle of servanthood is that the true servant gives up his or her rights. The second principle of servanthood is the true servant gives away his assets, verses 17 and 18. The true servant gives away his assets. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. One of the most unforgettable men I ever knew was a man named Eric Frickenberg. Eric went to Bombay, India in 1929 to serve the Lord. Over the next 30 years, he established 19 different churches among the Telugu people of India. I first met him when he was retired, and he came to our home in Pakistan as he traveled around the world for what was then Conservative Baptist Foreign Mission Society. Later, Eric was in our home often during the 1970s whenever my dad scheduled him to speak in our church in Old Town. Anybody who heard him speak recognized that he was a man of deep godliness. He never needed any notes, nor did he seem to plan his messages. He stayed in my then future wife's home, and my mother-in-law said that every morning when she got up early, she would find him on the couch with his Bible wide open, praying his way through the scriptures. When Eric preached, 
He just opened the Bible and began to share from his personal walk with God through his word. When the time came to close, he would say, Well, we'll pick up there next time. And he would sit down. I'm told that he regularly wore out Bibles every two years in a dozen different languages. Many wanted to write a biography of Eric Frickenberg, but he wouldn't be interviewed because he said it was calling attention to the servant instead of the master. After he died in 1986, his son, a church history professor at the University of Wisconsin, wrote these words about him. Eric Frickenberg held dear nothing of this world. He was never happier than when giving something of worth to someone else. During his last weeks, he was ready to go. The house had been sold and all proceeds dispensed. Except for his old car, only a worn attaché briefcase and a carry-on suitcase remained. One, holding his Bible, prayer list, notebook, pen, and ink. The other, tied with an old belt, holding his pajamas, razor, and a change of clothes. An attached envelope left simple instructions telling what to do with him when he was gone. My friends, you don't need a will if you've given it all away before you die. I see a lot of Nehemiah in Dr. Eric Frickenberg. Nehemiah, too, was in the process of giving it all away. One scholar estimates that Nehemiah was serving a meal for between 600 to 800 people a day, including the 150 Jews and government officials mentioned in these verses. Persian governors were expected to entertain other national officials lavishly, but Nehemiah extended the privilege to the poor people of the city as well. Most Persian governors taxed the people so that they could entertain lavishly. However, Nehemiah makes the point that he did not tax the people at all. So where did the money come from to provide this kind of food on a daily basis, this feast? Apparently, it came from Nehemiah's own resources that had been stored in the treasury over the years. His bank account paid for the banquets that served the poor people. Now, Nehemiah was undoubtedly a wealthy man. He had risen to one of the higher and more influential positions in the Persian court and must have accumulated significant wealth in the process. He used the resources available to him to serve the needs of the people. That's why I say to you that the true servant gives away his assets. Nehemiah gave of himself to meet the needs of others. Giving is the essence of serving. Scottish Presbyterians established churches in the African country of Ghana over a hundred years ago, and some of their worship services still resemble the formal and rigid Presbyterian services of old Scotland. There is one notable difference, however, according to missionaries. They have allowed traditional African expressions to be used at one point in the worship service. They let the people dance as they bring their offerings forward. The music plays, and each individual dances joyfully down the aisle to put their gift in the offering plate. 
The missionaries say that this is the only time in the worship service when the people smile. I think God smiles too. The true servant delights in giving, and God is delighted with the giving. Nehemiah gave up his rights, and Nehemiah gave away his assets. Is it any wonder that a great revival took place in the days of Nehemiah? My friends, don't wait until you die to leave your assets to others. You will leave them all behind. You can't take them with you. Death is the end of your ability to give, not the beginning. Financial advisor Ron Blue said, Do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. I like that. Randy Alcorn said, My heart always goes where I put God's money. He called it the treasure principle. The treasure principle says, You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Martin Luther put it this way, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. My dad, who's with the Lord now, often said, Son, hold all things loosely. Hold all things loosely. Do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. Now, I don't know about you, but all this sounds pretty overwhelming to me. Nehemiah's example in all these quotes could put us on a guilt trip, and that's not my attention in the message. I don't know if Nehemiah had a wife and children, but I wonder what they said about his service, if he did. We do have responsibilities to our families, of course. But here is the key to unlocking the whole passage. If we stop with verse 18, we end up with only duty and obligation, and the result can be a depressing and guilt-ridden Christian service. And sadly, many Christians live this way. But, but Nehemiah did not stop with verse 18. We see his real motivation in verse 19. Listen to what he says in verse 19. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Remember me, O my God, for good. I'm amused at the way many commentators struggle with verse 19. Many see it as egotistical or selfish. They struggle with the reward orientation and try to explain the verse away in the light of Nehemiah's nationalism and ethnic pride. I think they miss the whole point of chapter 5 when they do this. Verse 19 is the key to understanding the entire chapter and the key to understanding the principle of sacrificial service for all of us. When we read, Remember me, O my God, for good, the translation makes it sound like Nehemiah wants a reward for his sacrificial service. There is, of course, a reward factor in all our service for Christ. Christ promised us a return on our investment in heaven. 
we will receive rewards in addition to eternal life, according to Matthew 19.29. We sacrifice for the Lord here, but we shall gain a great return for those sacrifices when we get to heaven. Sacrifices here pay back there. Call it our eternity portfolio. Christ pays our dividends in heaven for our investments on earth. Now, as true as that is, and it is true, I think we miss the point when we think only in terms of reward. Nehemiah has a deeper motivation in this verse. I like the way the NIV translates it. Remember me with favor, O my God. Remember me with favor, O my God. The Hebrew word good or favor can mean to be pleasing or desirable. I don't think that Nehemiah is asking for a specific reward here other than the reward of God's pleasure in what he has done for God. Nehemiah is saying, God, above all else, I want to be remembered by you as pleasing and desirable to you in all I did in this life. He's saying, I want to bring pleasure to you, O God. Remember me with pleasure, O God. It's similar to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. We have as our ambition, our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord, to bring him pleasure. Nehemiah knew that he did not have to please others. He didn't have to please anybody else. He only wanted to please the Lord. So all the sacrifice and service was motivated by a desire to please the Lord, not other people. Nehemiah didn't even live for the pleasure of his earthly king. He lived to please his heavenly king. The message of Nehemiah 5 is that the true servant lives for the king's pleasure. As John Piper points out in his book, Desiring God, we will never find our deepest happiness in the pursuit of our own pleasure. The deepest and most enduring happiness is found only in God, he writes. Here's the key, my friends, to changing our service from drudgery to joy, from duty to delight. As long as we see ourselves as the servants of other people, we will be worn out and discouraged by the demands of others. We will become miserable in our service because we cannot do everything and please everyone. It never works. Whom do we really serve? We serve the master, not the people. When we are mastered by the people, we will work to please people. When we work to please people, we fail to please the master. Friends, we do not live to serve others, we live to serve the Lord. The pleasure of God is a far greater motive for service than the needs of humanity. Live for the smile of God, and you will serve the needs of people. 
The Oscar-winning movie Chariots of Fire is one of my all-time favorite movies. The movie was based on the true story of two athletes who wanted to win gold medals in the 1924 Olympics. Harold Abrahams and Eric Little both represented England, but came from two entirely different backgrounds. Harold Abrahams was the bitter Jewish aristocrat from Cambridge who lived for himself. Eric Little was the son of missionaries from Scotland who lived for the Lord. One hour from the final race, Abrahams was being rubbed down by the trainer, and he confessed to his friend, I'm 24, and I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. It's estimated by research surveys that 80% of working Americans are discontented with their jobs. I think the percentage of discontented Christians may be even higher. Pat Morley says that we need to redefine our boss if we are to have contentment in our work. Our boss is God. Our king is Christ. We do not live to please others. We don't even live to please ourselves. We do not chase after the wind. We live to please God on the job, in the home, and in the church. That's the key to contentment. Eric Little was criticized by the Olympic Committee for refusing to run races on Sunday, and it almost cost him his chance in the Olympics. But he was also criticized by Christians for running in the Olympics at all. They thought it was unspiritual. His own sister Jenny thought he was running out of rebellion against God. She pressed him to return to the mission field in China, where they were both born and where their parents still served the Lord. One day his sister was upset with Eric because he had missed a missionary prayer meeting for a race. So Eric decided to talk with her. Eric and Jenny walked to a beautiful knoll overlooking the Scottish highlands, and he took Jenny by the arms and he said, Jenny, Jenny, you've got to understand. I believe God made me for a purpose, for China. But he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. He also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Then, in the Olympic race, we see Eric as he rounds the final turn of the quarter mile in Paris, France. He throws back his head, mouth wide open in the sheer ecstasy of running for the pleasure of God. Not to run would be to hold God in contempt. To win is to honor him. Eric won the gold medal in the 1924 Olympics. Then he went back to China as a missionary, and he died in China during World War II. What are you chasing in life? Whose pleasure drives your life, God's or others or self?
the true servant lives for the king's pleasure. Each of us has a different set of God-given resources. We do not all have Nehemiah's wealth and position and power. We do not all have Eric Little's speed. God calls each of us to use those resources differently. Yes, the true servant gives up his rights and gives away his assets, but he does so not because someone else asked him to, but for the pleasure of the king whom he serves. Do you experience his pleasure in what you do? What do you do that you know brings God's smile? I have told this story many times over the years, but it is one of my favorite childhood memories of my parents, who are both now with the Lord. We are traveling down some dusty road in the Sin Desert of Pakistan, returning from a trip to one of the villages. It's late at night, and my brother and I are asleep in the back seat of our Volkswagen microbus. I wake up to hear my parents in the front seats quietly singing together. I can feel their joy. I sense their contentment in spite of the long day and the difficult circumstances. They feel the pleasure of the king as they serve him here on earth. Peace fills the car as they sing. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. O oh Lord, you know, I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then, Lord, what will I do? O oh, the angels beckon me from heaven's distant shore, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. 